Thank you, Kevin and Vera. Good morning, uh, everyone online and in person here at Westland today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen Ramsey, and uh, yeah, I dearly miss seeing all of you in person. But uh, as we continue online today, uh, would you please open your Bibles? As Pastor Sam said, we're going to be going on a two-week series through prayer. Uh, today, we're going to be looking toward the end of Jesus' ministry, and next week uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, closer to the beginning of his ministry. But Jesus had a lot to teach about prayer, and a lot that is important for us to hear today as well from his word. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. I've entitled my message, Praying with Pain and Perseverance. Praying with Pain and Perseverance. Before I read the text, I'll just give you some context. This is towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's headed toward Jerusalem where he will be killed, murdered on the cross and die a gruesome death, and rise again on the third day. And right before the lesson and the passage we're looking at today, he speaks about his second coming in chapter 17. And right at the end of this passage today that we're looking at, he again speaks about his second coming when he comes back. So Jesus is very interested in us being ready for when he comes back. He knows it's going to take perseverance. That it's not a simple thing to wait with faith and belief and staying alive in the Christian life. So this, then, is a parable we're going to be looking at today. And it is a parable for a people who need to persevere. It is a parable for a people who might feel discouraged, might want to lose heart, but are called not to lose heart. It is a parable for us to push on in the faith for a people who have heard of the first coming of Christ and wait for the second coming of Christ. I think this is a special parable because it is very much for us today. And every day, as we get closer to the return of Christ, how much more important a parable like this is for us that even ends with Jesus asking who will be ready for him, who will have faith. So let's pray and look at the text today. Thank you, Father God, that you have given us help and hope that we can be honest as Christians, that when our faith is discouraged, when we feel like losing heart, that you have scriptures for us to read, that you have a calling for us to pursue, that there is hope for us. And I pray that you would help us to be a praying people at this time, that even if we're not all together in person right now, that we would be praying together, that we would be seeking you together. So I pray that you would be teaching us through your scriptures today about prayer and that you would continue to transform our lives toward your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Reading Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. 
And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Today I want to look at two main points in this text. And the interesting thing about this parable is that it doesn't hide the lessons for us, as some of the parables take a bit of work to get the meaning out of. This is one of those interesting parables that tell us what it's about right at the beginning. And it doesn't tell you what it's about at the beginning, so you can zone out and tune out and not listen to it, but to inform you as you're reading what you're learning about. In verse 1, it says here, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So there is a call right at this text here for two things, to always to pray and not lose heart. And uh, today I want to look at that together here as we're looking through this text, what that means. I'm excited to kind of walk you through how to use this, and I'm really hoping that'll be... So um, point one that I'm going to be looking at today is we as Christians are called to a persevering prayer. We as Christians are called to a persevering prayer. Jesus says right at the beginning of this text that we are always to pray. And when we think about that, we have to then ask, what does it mean to always pray? There are many things in life that we always do without thinking about them. We always breathe. We breathe when we sleep. Um, We're not consciously thinking about it, but it continues to happen. Um, We always drink water and food with each day. Um, But here we're called to always pray. And why are we called to do that? Well, one of the things we have to think about is obviously we don't get this. We need reminders. Jesus knew that. He's talking to a people who are prone to lose heart and need to persevere, and he's telling them they always need to pray. This doesn't come naturally in the fallen, sinful world that we live in today. So we need to ask again, what does always mean? Always doesn't mean that you need to quit your job, go to a monastery, and pray with every second of your life, not doing anything else in your life. If that was what always meant, then you wouldn't have seen Jesus and his disciples going throughout the towns doing ministry, healings, teachings, and lots of important events. The word always can't mean that, but what it seems is that the word always here is referring to a pattern of life. When Jesus says, we always need to pray, when he's teaching the parable this way, he's giving us a pattern of life. And it's an amazing pattern of life when we think about it, because it means throughout our lives, no matter what we're doing, we can pray. When you are at the grocery store trying to figure out which arrow and aisle you're supposed to be going down, you could be praying. When your kid has fallen down and their knee is bleeding and they're crying and you're stressed out because your other kid has a diaper that needs changing, you can still pray. It doesn't have to be a 30-minute prayer session. A five-second prayer can work too. You can pray at any time in your life. You could pray when you're feeling discouraged with the restrictions or you're scared of the virus that's out there. You can pray at any any and every point in your life. The call is to be a people who are always praying and living life. I could think of an example from the, near the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic for my own family. 
Um, we had been trying to use the hand sanitizer a lot, and unfortunately, my wife Michelle got dermatitis from it on her arm, and it was very inflamed, and we were very concerned for her, and we were praying for her and asking for help. And uh, at this point, she was pregnant with Isaiah, and we had asked for a midwife to come and check it out because doing a video checkup doesn't work as well for actually seeing what's going on. And, and we were praying, and I remember I told Joanna, let's just pray the midwife will be right here, right now. And I don't normally just pray for this exact kind of thing like that, but I just felt in my spirit like, I need to pray this. So I told Joanna, okay, we are praying the midwife's going to be at the door right now. Let's go pray. And we just, it wasn't complicated. We just prayed for 30 seconds, maybe. And then I told Joanna, my six-year-old daughter, let's go to the door. We prayed, let's just go to the door and see. So we walked up to the door and opened it. And whoa, she was there. <laughs> I have to admit, I was actually really surprised. But Joanna and I saw it and I was like, oh, she's here. Okay. I didn't hear a knock or a doorbell ring, but here she is. And she came on in and helped. And uh, that was the beginning of the healing process there. But I use this as an example that even in the chaotic moments of life, we're called to pray. I think there's two things to remember here in particular. Prayer here is not presented as something only for strong spiritual people who have the best spiritual life put together. Sometimes we can get this false idea that it's just the super spiritual people who pray every day and who have that kind of ability to do that. Because if you think about it, prayer is asking God for help, is asking God to be in your day. Prayer is not for super strong people. Prayer is for super weak people. And we as Christians are all dependent and needy. We are as sheep seeking the shepherd. So the question is not, are you strong enough to pray? The question is, are you weak enough to acknowledge and see your dependence upon God, your dependence upon your Savior, to cry out to him with each day and every moment, to continue to seek him throughout your days? Another thing this text shows us by saying we should always pray is there is no dichotomy in the Christian life. For Jesus, our spiritual life is a part of every part of our life. We do not clock out of the Christian faith when we go to our office job or maybe working from home now. We don't say, well, I'll pray before I work and I'll pray after I work, but for eight hours, God has nothing to do with me. That's not how we live the life. For Jesus, he's saying we're always to pray. So we should think upon that ourselves. If there are ways that we ignore God in our days, because the call here is not to pray sometimes, and the call here is not to pray when things are going bad or only good, but to be always a praying people. So let's look further at the parable then. There are two characters in this parable. The first is about a judge. It says here in verse 2, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So the first thing then we see in this parable is we have a judge, and he's terrible, the worst possible judge you can imagine. Why? He doesn't fear God, and he doesn't care about man. So then you have to ask, okay, so what's his precedent? His precedent is, I'm going to do whatever I want. And that's not the kind of judge you want. You want a judge who's not about himself. You want a judge who's looking to the law, who is not going to have partiality toward his own personal biases. Uh, there's examples, of course, all throughout our modern society today of judges who are terrible because of this very fact that they treat the law with callous disregard and only care about their own opinion. In the States, the United States, many years ago, there was a judge who had an unusual track record of sending tons and tons of juveniles, kids, 
very young kids to jail for very minor infractions. And uh, people started looking into this judge and saying, well, why is he sending so many kids to jail? It's not normal for the other parts of the states. Very minor infractions these kids have. And they looked into it, and it turns out that he was getting money from the jail for every kid that he would send in there. And there was a corruption there. And they found out he wasn't actually doing judicial work based on the law that was presented, the precedence of the other courts, but upon a personal gain for himself. And here we get a similar idea with this judge, that he only cares about himself. From here we get the second character, and it's a widow. It says in verse 3, There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So we don't know a lot about this widow. She has some kind of problem. She's going through some kind of injustice. And we're told it's real. It's a real problem she has. And a widow, of course, is the most helpless type of person in that society. A widow is somebody who was in major trouble because they didn't have a welfare state back then in which you could just ask the government for help. The widow would be dependent upon some kind of man in their life. The husband would be the main priority to get help from, but now that she's a widow, she doesn't have that. So she might look to her son, but what if she doesn't have a son? Um, Family was the way that she would receive help. And here we get the idea she's helpless, that this widow is helpless. And here, this widow then is seeking help from an unjust judge. So verses 4 to 5 describe how she comes to this judge. It says, For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man. Again, he's just telling his heart out here in this parable, so we understand perfectly what's going on with this judge. He doesn't care. Verse 5, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. It's interesting here. He mentions this word, beat me down. He's concerned about this. It's becoming annoying to him. He doesn't want to help this widow. He doesn't care about this widow at all. But he ends up helping her. Why? Because she's beating him down by the continual coming, by asking again and again and again and again and again and again. And in the Greek, it's interesting, this word about beat me down is, uh, is kind of, it's a word like getting a swollen face or, or, or almost, like, um, almost like a boxing term in a sense that you've been discolored by many blows. And it's like the judge is saying, it's just painful after a while that this widow keeps asking me again and again for help. But it's quite a picture. I mean, imagine yourself being that woman that you have been rejected one time by this judge. And then you go and you get rejected a second time. And you go again for the tenth time a month later. And you go 25 times. And you keep going and you keep asking. Can you imagine the level of hope just sinking down? This judge isn't helping me. Nothing's going to happen. I'll keep trying, but what point is this? You can imagine. She just keeps going anyways. And then all of a sudden, there's an answer. Out of nowhere, it would seem hopeless. She would have lost heart, you would have thought. But she keeps going. This is the manner in which we are always to pray before God. In this text, it tells us to always pray. We are to pray constantly and continually, even if you don't feel like it, even if you've asked a hundred times and you don't feel like there's an answer, but you are called to continue to pray, to ask again and again to God, to go back to him, to always 
pray and not to lose heart. The, the bishop in England, J.C. Ryle, talked about this text. And uh, he said this when he was looking at this text. He said, Let it then be engraved deeply in our minds that it is far more easy to begin a habit of prayer than it is to keep it up. The fear of death or some temporary piercings of conscience or some excited feelings may make a man begin praying after a fashion. But to go on praying requires saving faith. We are apt to become weary and to give way to the suggestion of Satan that it is of no use. And then comes the time when the parable before us ought to be carefully remembered. We must recollect that our Lord expressly told us always to pray and never give up. So what are we getting at here in this parable? The point of the parable, then, is there is a comparison going on here, and it's a lesser to greater comparison. The point is, if even this unjust judge, this terrible judge, is willing to help the widow after a time, how much more God will help and answer prayer for his own children. If this terrible judge, after being beat down with these requests, finally gives in, how much more our good God will gladly answer prayers for his own children who follow him. God is not unjust. How much more we can easily ask and have hope in our requests before God. The point of this parable then here should overwhelm us with the accessibility of God that we have and the real help that we get from God as well. I think of myself in my own life. I've had the odd client that I worked for before, Um, where I send in an invoice and they don't pay me, and I I ask again and again and again and again, I usually give up maybe six or seven tries. Thankfully, it hasn't happened a lot. But here, we're called to to persevere far more than even that as we pray to God, and repetition being a point in which we're showing faith. Some people could ask, well, if you pray for a prayer request that you've already prayed for, doesn't that mean you didn't believe in the prayer request to begin with? And to that, I would say, it depends how you're going to God to pray. We're not going to God as a magic genie. We're going to God in a relationship with him as his children because we're going to him continuing to ask God because we continue to care about these things because we continue to believe that God answers prayer and that we want God to be a part of our lives every day. An example in the Old Testament, and I love examples from the Old Testament about these things, is in the book of 2 Kings. There is a king called Hezekiah, and he is a man of prayer, and he is given the most horrendous problem you can imagine— it's in 2 Kings chapter 19. Uh, I'd encourage you to read that in your own time. But in 2 Kings 19, the most horrifying army possible is coming up to the gates of Jerusalem, the Assyrian army. And they have taken over all these nations that were so powerful beforehand. And he brings the smartest advisors. They know Hebrew. They're going to scare all the people on the wall who are supposed to defend Jerusalem. And uh, as the king of Assyria comes, Hezekiah knows this, this is a problem. All these other countries have been defeated. Even uh, the northern tribe has been defeated. And now Judah remains at the south. And, and he's got Jerusalem here. What's he going to do? And uh, here, in 2 Kings chapter 19, it says, in verse 1, he gets on sackcloth and he goes to the house of the Lord. Hezekiah does not think, I need to make a military strategy, call up the allies from Egypt, and we're going to defeat these Assyrians. 
He says, I need to pray. And then in verse 4 of chapter 19 of 2 Kings, he goes and asks help from Isaiah the prophet. He asks Isaiah to pray too. His military strategy is, we need to pray, and you need to pray, and everyone needs to pray. And then it's interesting because Isaiah the prophet gets the word, and they get an answer from God, and it says, you know, the king of Assyria is going to leave. You get your answer to prayer. He's going to leave. Now, at this point, you can imagine Hezekiah might be tempted to say, okay, we did it. Praise God. Let's move on with our life. Okay, open up the government again. We're going to do some more politics. Got to work on the wall since we have more threats. No, he doesn't do any of that. He keeps praying. He got an answer to prayer. And what does he do? He keeps praying more. And he prays even more that the Lord would deliver them from the Assyrians. And then, after he gets an answer to prayer and keeps praying anyways, he gets another answer to prayer in which, in verse 35 of that chapter, an angel of the Lord then goes out and strikes down 185,000 troops from the Assyrian army. A massive defeat. And Israel, the southern tribe, I should say, in Jerusalem doesn't even lift a finger. No weapons pointed. God answers. But here, we could imagine it would be so easy for Hezekiah to say, well, we got our answer to prayer. We don't need to keep praying. But he does. He keeps praying, and he gets an even more magnificent answer to prayer. What if God doesn't answer a prayer for us right away because he wants us to keep praying? Here, Hezekiah was told to keep praying, and here he kept praying and God answers. Isaiah was encouraging him in his prayers. He kept going and he got more answers. Another story could be said of Hezekiah, even while he was dying, he was given a promise that he was going to die, and you would think, well, he would just get his house in order then. But instead, again, Hezekiah, sorry, Hezekiah in verse 20 of that book, prays that he would be helped, and God extends his life for another 15 years. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is important, and prayer does things. As we have a God who changes the world, and we've seen this through his Son. Point number two, then, I want to see in Luke chapter 18 is about not losing heart. And point two in uh, the outline for today is, we as Christians are called not to lose heart by remembering identity. God's just identity, and our elect identity. So why don't we always pray then? We don't always pray, I think because this text is right, it says we lose heart. We lose heart in the sense that we'll forget eventually to pray for things as we don't care for them anymore. We don't trust that God's going to answer prayer. We stop praying for unbelievers. We can think prayer isn't doing much. But here we're given encouragement not to lose heart, and we have to ask why. It's based on who God is, and it's also based on who we are in relation to God. In verse 6, we're given the picture of the, the judge being unjust, and we're not supposed to think God is unjust. It's not a direct comparison in that sense. God is not unjust. This is instead, as I already said, a comparison to show how much greater God is. Are we to think then that God hates having our prayers before him, that he feels beat up by it? No, again, not at all. Here, we're given a picture of God being just, and that is the exact point in which God answers prayer. In verse 7, it says, Will not God give justice to his elect? God is one who believes in justice, true justice. So he is not like the unrighteous judge. He is absolute superior to it in the fact that he does answer prayer. And he is glad to do so. So then we have to ask, what is justice? 
It's the very vocabulary about how God answers prayer here. When God is answering prayer, it's not a promise for free cars or unlimited amounts of money or whatever you want. The answer to prayer that is given here is that God will give justice to his elect. In the Bible, the word justice, it seems, is most often referred to for the widow and the orphan. Throughout the Old Testament, even in the book of James, it refers to pure religion being in relation to that. The widow and orphan being the most vulnerable people in society. And we need to make sure when we look at justice, we think about it through God's lens and what he's revealed through scripture. As every generation of man has their own priorities that we put over top of things. And sometimes it seems like in the media, the only kind of justice people talk about is social justice. But in the Bible, we get a bigger picture of what justice is, including a type of retributive justice where God punishes as well as a restorative justice in which God helps and restores people. In particular, though, here in this text, as we look about justice, we see that God's justice is directed toward a people. In this text here, it's saying God will give justice to his elect. Verse 7, will not God give justice to his elect? And from there, then, we again ask, what is that identity? Verse 7 says that it's the elect people who are given this help. It doesn't just say a word like God's poor, miserable sheep or children or anything like that. Here it particularly uses the word elect. And then we have to ask, what does that mean? What does that mean, elect? Are we elect? Are we chosen by God? Election is a word to speak of electing, choosing somebody to be in a position. Obviously, we have elections where we pick governments, and elect means God's chosen children as well. And it's interesting because as soon as we bring up terms like this, they could be really loaded, and people can be like, okay, I'm ready for the debate. What's it going to be about? But when we look at the doctrine of election in Scripture, it is not presented to us as a debate topic primarily, that we need to debate about the meaning of this word, and we have these two camps here, and what their definitions are. When election is presented in the Bible, it is presented as a precious identity marker for Christians, something in which we anchor our faith on, something in which we hope in our God through. Election is not some debate topic. Sure, there are debates to be had where We need to go into scripture and see what it means, but it's so much more than just that. And we, to make some quick points about this, obviously not everyone is elect. If everybody in the whole world were elect, then the term would be meaningless. The idea is a special choosing, and there are many other passages in scripture which go through what this is. But the scripture does make clear that God's elect are his children and the ones who are going to follow him to the end. So being elect, then, is very precious because it means God chose you, God saved you, God owns you, God helps you, God listens to your prayers. Being elect should bring great comfort to us as it puts our identity outside of ourselves and our identity to the God who elected us because we did not elect ourselves. Much more could be said, but... I just want to get to that point. The point of election should be a wonder to us and a comfort to us that God will finish his work for us in the end. So our prayers matter right now because God wants to give justice to his elect, to his true children. 
From here, there's one other word that is brought in this text that anchors a lot of this together. Verse 8, it says, I tell you, he will give justice to them, that is his elect, speedily. It is that word, speedily. God's answers to his elect are speedily done. And we could ask, well, how could that be? I've had enough prayer requests not answered the way I want right away. How could that be speedy? But here in this text, we are told that God answers prayer speedily. And it doesn't mean that you're going to get whatever you want, whenever you want it. But it does mean we actually should trust that God answers prayer in a fast fashion, even if we don't see the answers to the prayer. We actually are called to believe that God answers prayer very fast. And it's very special for us, being elect children of God then. An example that I love is again in the Old Testament with the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, it's interesting, he's reading from Jeremiah, and he perceives that the 70 years of exile that they've gone through are about to end. As he puts two and two together, he puts these timelines together, and he thinks, oh, 70 years. The exile was promised to be 70 years. Let's do the math. (laughs) Oh, it's been 70 years. I should pray for this. We should get our land back. And he prays. And it's interesting because in Daniel chapter 9, we're given a secret look into how this prayer request works in terms of how God answers this prayer request. We're not often told the semantics and the exact way in which a prayer might be answered. But here in Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 to 23, it says, um, at the beginning of the prayer, an angel goes out. At the beginning of a prayer, God sends an angel out. And it's amazing because that is speed. You talk about a fast prayer request, that is faster than a fast food restaurant right there. That at the very beginning of this man's prayer, Daniel, God sends out an angel to him. And he allows Daniel to know this. The angel tells him, I was sent out right as you started speaking. That was such a prayer. So we should see from this that, yes, God does answer prayer for his elect. No, that doesn't always mean it's going to work how we want it to work. That doesn't mean we're always going to feel like the prayer is being answered necessarily. We're not always going to give all the answers. We're not going to get all the answers to how our prayers are working. Obviously, there are other scriptures to go through that talk about the fact that our prayers can be hindered through unbelief or, or husbands not being uh, um, reasonable with their wives, in a sense, First Peter. So there are other verses like that. But the general sense that we're to get and learn from this parable here is that for God's elect children, we are not to lose heart. We are always to pray. And we're given a a passage here that tells us answers to prayer are speedily done in justice. Another thing that Daniel is told in his answer to prayer, which I think is helpful for us today, is God's reminder to Daniel in verses 20 to 23. It says, you are greatly loved. That was something God wanted Daniel to know through his times of discouragement. You talk about discouragement. I mean, they had been exiled 70 years. I mean, we haven't been able to meet together at Westland for almost a year, but I can't imagine how hard it would be 70 years in exile with a foreign nation taking you over and how much you would want to lose heart. And here Daniel is told, you're greatly loved. And, and I hope all of us at Westland know that too today. If we are true children of the true God and we are his elect children who are walking in faith each day, we can have confidence that, that God answers prayer and that we are greatly loved. That God isn't looking at our prayers like, oh, not another one. But he is enjoying our prayers, our fellowship with him, and our closeness to him. So, 
Christians who are out there today, are you feeling discouraged? Are you feeling like you can't pray? Are you not seeing answers to your prayers? Do you feel weak in your faith? Is the coronavirus and the other issues surrounding that making you feel discouraged? There are promises here for you today. Remember God's identity, the just, good judge of all the universe. Remember your identity if you are a follower in Christ, that you are elect. And remember that God answers prayer with speed and seek him in these eyes. From here then, we just need to look at the last part of verse 8. It says here, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith on earth? The parable here concludes with the fact that Jesus is coming back. That he is coming back and he's going to be looking for something. Will he find faith? And this is a question meant for all of us to absorb today. Because our prayers right now reveal in part what we believe about Jesus coming back. As you pray today, it shows what you believe about the end times. Do you treat Jesus like he's real right now? By praying and seeking him. When you get to see Jesus face to face when he comes back, are you going to be continuing this conversation you've been having with him all your life? Or is it going to be a really awkward introduction where you have been ignoring him your life and you see him and you don't know him? And all you have is fear and the wrath of God before you because you've never turned your life to him. Because you've only ignored him. And it's worse than the worst awkward conversation with a friend you haven't seen for 20 years. Because your whole life, you never sought him. When you get to see him face to face, when you get to see Jesus coming back, it will show a lot about what's happened before. Let's be a people who have active faith right now. Because he's looking for people who have faith on the earth. Our life matters right now. Our actions matter right now. And our prayers matter right now. If you're not a believer at this point and and you're, you're wondering about this, you know, I would encourage you two things especially right now. To be repenting of your sins and the things that you've done to displease God. And even if you're a believer who is in active sin right now, to be repenting of your sins as well. To be believing in Christ. The amazing thing is here, we've learned about this just God who is so just. And this just God sent down his own son, Jesus, 2,000 years ago to receive the justice for his own children that we deserved on the cross. The just God sent down his own son to pay for perfect justice. So if you believe in him today, if you will call upon the name of Jesus today, your sins can be paid for as well. And then you can trust in this just judge as well. If you will repent and turn to him and give him your life in full surrender. Believe in the cross of Christ as your only hope, as your payment for your sins. And look upon Jesus and what he did when he rose from the dead, giving victory. You know, if that's you today, please seek uh, help from a leader afterwards from Westland Baptist here. Uh, Contact somebody through the chat or through the Zoom meeting afterwards. But if... uh, if you're a regular tender and a, a member of Wesson, I'd also encourage you to, to seek repentance of faith as well. If there are areas in your life where you have fallen into sin and it has disconnected you in your prayers to God, seek him, come back as a child of God as well. Let's end in prayer. Father God, I thank you that we have access to you. It's amazing that we could pray to you. 
And we don't pray to you because we have paid for our own sins, because we couldn't even pay for one of our own sins. But we know we can pray to you because Jesus has paid for our sins and given us true life. And that now we don't have to pray with fear, wondering whether we're good enough to pray to you. But we get to pray enjoying fellowship with you and seeking you and and having access to you as elect children. And I pray for all of the Christians today who are hearing this, that they would be encouraged as well to pray more, not thinking they have to pray and it's some tedious, boring thing, but knowing the joy in being able to approach you, God, through prayer. And for those who are not believers, I pray you would continue to work on their hearts today in repentance and faith, seeking you. Please allow us, Lord, to pray with perseverance, to pray with hearts that are not falling apart, and to pray with lives that are seeking you. Help us to be a praying people. In Jesus' name, amen.